He is Achilles, the Red Bone, Missouri. I'm <laughs> Reggie Bailey. This is Books of Pop Culture. Achilles, it's 2023. I don't think people know how you coming, man. You got a new nickname every episode, man. Yeah, you know what I'm saying? What was I? I was arguably uh, the most <laughs> handsome man alive. Uh, then there was the drop dead gorgeous incident. And now I'm a red bone. Uh, yeah. You know, which red bone has always been um, one of those and ambiguous, uh, you know, because yeah. I like to think it's just someone who looks like they're on fire, you know, like, like they have like a, a radiant kind of yeah. thing. But then some people say some people like blur the lines between yellow bone and red bone. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I understand. It's um, one time I saw, and I'll get into the other stuff after this, people. But mm -hmm. one time I saw Megan the Stallion refer to herself as a red bone, and I was like, hmm, I don't yeah. know if I agree, Megan. Yeah, but yeah. nonetheless, I guess some people agree. She agrees with it. No, yeah, yeah. I guess that, that, that is what exactly <laughs> that is what one, matters most. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, thank you to the fellowship, first and last time viewers, first and last time listeners, and everyone in between because. You could be anywhere in the world right now, but you're here with us, and that's something we do not take lightly. So thank you. We truly appreciate you. There are numerous places where you can locate books of pop culture. Some of them are YouTube, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher. You name the place, we're probably there for visual or audio. And on those places, you could do things that we really like. You can subscribe to us. You can follow us. You can you know, like the episodes. You can comment on the episodes you can download them you can leave reviews on the podcast itself or the show itself and you could always share you can share with your friends your frenemies your enemies your family and of course your digital community so sharing is caring um so if you care share right uh, yes. something i don't know something like something. you you know there's a rhyme that that fits that you could do that would help spread the good word about what we do here um, you may have noticed that the first community I shouted out was the fellowship. And that's because the fellowship is our, as in books of pop cultures, amazing Patreon community. It's one that Achille and I biasly and objectively believe is the best in bookish communities. By joining the fellowship, you get access to our discord where we discuss a whole lot of books and a little bit of pop culture. You get access to bonus episodes of books of pop culture where we discuss a little bit of books and a whole lot of pop culture. And you get us one step closer to doing books of pop culture for a living. You can do that by going to patreon.com slash books of pop culture. Achille, I'm looking forward to this episode, man. Yeah, this is going to be fun. This is going to be fun. Yes. Yeah, man. It's it's going to be a lot. You know, our, our, our guest today is from Kent. And Columbus, Ohio. Shout out to Columbus, Ohio, and the artists yeah. that are coming out of Columbus who are putting out who are putting letters together, man. Yes. For yeah. real. Yeah. Um, she graduated with the she graduated from the creative writing program at the Vermont College of Fine Arts and has attended residencies at the Bread Loaf Writers Conference and the Tin House Writers Workshop, where she will teach in the online winter workshop in 2023. She has taught creative writing and literature through the Emerging Voices program at PEN America Los Angeles, at Writing Workshops Los Angeles, and the Berkeley College of Music and other academic institutions in L.A. and Boston. Her writing has been published in Lit Hub, L.A. Review of Books, Huffington Post, The Rumpus, The Writer, and myriad other 
publications. Her debut novel has been long listed for the Andrew Carnegie Medal for Excellence in Fiction, shortlisted for the Barnes & Noble Discover Prize, is also, at least as of this recording, a finalist for the Golden Poppy Book Award through the California Independent Booksellers Alliance. Our guest today is Laura Worrell, and we will be speaking to her about her debut novel, Sweet Soft, Plenty Rhythm, after this quick break. So this is a question that I'm, I'm known for asking, um, but it is it's quite simple. Um, how are you doing genuinely? And when we say genuinely, um, if you have trapped gas, say I have trapped gas. If, you know, <laughs> if it's a little too cold for your liking, let us know. But how are you feeling? Okay, I will. I will answer honestly. Um, I am straddling uh, bliss and anxiety. Hmm. Um, that's one of the consequences, I think, of your dream coming true, of putting a book in the world. Um, I've talked to, over the last six months, a lot of my peers, people whose books have come out in the last year or will be coming out, and your dream is coming true. You're happy, you're grateful, every piece of news, for the most part, is positive and you can't believe it's happening. Your family, your friends, mostly, are really happy for you. Um, and you can envision a future where you get to keep doing the work that you cherish. And for some of us feel like you were born to do. On the other hand, it's a business, it's an industry, industry, it's a market that you have no control over. And suddenly you're not just a writer or a craftsperson anymore. Now you're creating products and that's scary and uh, not as comfortable, you know? I mean, I, I am so grateful that this book is in the world and it's gotten a lot of good coverage and some buzz, um, but it is a little intimidating to now be, as I write the next book, thinking about a market and how it's gonna be received. Um, but I'm trying to stay uh, centered in the work, in myself, trying to tune it out as much as I can so I can just uh, keep writing and stay in that place of bliss and gratitude, frankly, that uh, I've got a book in the world. Yeah. So, so thank you for asking. Yes, of course. Yeah. Of course. No, th thank you for that answer. And I even have a follow-up, right? Like, like, what do you kind of like stay away from in order to maintain the, the, the bliss? Uh, I try to stay away from social media. I don't think I'm alone with that, um, in part because it's too easy to lose hours uh, yeah. where I could be spending, when I could be spending time writing. But the other piece is, um, and again, I know I'm not alone in this and, and sharing it, not to sort of say, here's my personal experience, but to say, this is what's happening for us behind the scenes. A lot of us writers is you're seeing a list that you're not on, right? Or you're seeing an opportunity that you didn't know about and you're thinking, should I be doing that, right? Now you have a career to maintain um, and you worry about it because none of us really know, I think, how to do that. So one thing I try to do is stay away from um, social media as much as I can, but I'm still expected to do it. 
Um, I try to connect with, with other writers um, and who remind me that we're all in the same boat. It's a struggle for all of us. It's a triumph and uh, dream for, for all of us. And one of the other things that I do is I go back to uh, art that inspires me and makes me feel good. Uh, last night, actually, I was at an event with um, a writer didn't, that I didn't know named Jordan Harper, but he was interviewed by a writer I do know, S.A. Uh, Cosby. And um, he was talking about, you know, or actually Jordan, the other, the other writer was talking about every morning before he writes, he reads something that gets him into the spirit. And so I did that today and so much anxiety just went away because it was like, well, this is what it's about, you know? It's about reading and, and writing and, and craft and love. Yeah. And, and so it's disconnecting from the noise and reconnecting with, with the art. Yeah, no, that's, uh, yeah. that, Try. that is, that sounds like how it's supposed to go, you know, yeah. um, truly <laughs> yeah. just, um, just being engulfed in the process as much as you can. Mm -hmm. And I, so typically I have like a like a very generic question here, but I think I'm gonna try to frame it in a unique manner for you just from what I know. Right. So typically I ask here, what's the important what's the most important lesson you've learned about the business of writing? But I guess what I want to ask you about is, you know, Lisa Lucas going to Pantheon was a big deal. Right. It received mm -hmm. a lot of yeah. press, you know, long articles. Right. With yeah. her being kind of like the face um, in a lot of instances of like publishing trying to diversify and you know quote unquote yeah. do the right thing right yeah. and you were always mentioned in these articles as well because you're the first book acquired by you know uh, Lisa Lucas right in her right. reign at Pantheon um can you talk about just that experience I mean just anywhere you want to go good bad sure. in between like um I was following Lisa like everybody, um, following her on social media, knew of her reputation and her career. Uh, and so I hoped when my book went out, went out on submission that she would get it. Um, and so when my agent told me that she was interested in the manuscript and, and especially once she, they told me she was gonna make an offer, I was ecstatic um, and especially being her first book. Uh, and Lisa is brilliant. Uh, she is intensely uh, loyal and committed to her to her writers. Um, and I, I really genuinely feel honored to be working with her. Um, and, you know, I think we've shared in different ways the pressure, right? It's my first book. It's her first book. Her first book as an editor. My first book as a writer. I don't know if she, I will not put words in her mouth, but I definitely felt uh, less pressure knowing that I wasn't in it on my, that it wasn't just me, right? That this moment wasn't just about me, but she and my agent who's, who, you know, this is a big book for him too. We were all sort of in this together, right? Wanting this book to succeed and putting everything we could behind it. Um, and so I was really uh, grateful about that. And it was a really wonderful experience, but for sure, a lot of pressure. Um, in fact, I wrote an essay that should be coming out in the next month or so about my publishing journey. 
And when that New York Times article came out last January, sort of profiling her and presenting my book as the first book that, you know, she was in a way staking at least the beginning of her reputation in publishing on, that was both exciting and also, yeah, ah, that's a lot, right? Um, but it's been, I, I feel like I've made a, a new friend and I have a relationship with her where I trust her. Um, I feel like she's got my back. I feel like she gets who I am as a writer and she's seeing, you know, a career and not just a product. And um, that is what I think every writer wants. Um, so for sure, there's been pressure. There's still pressure. Um, it's kind of like uh, I'm working with a superstar, um, but uh, but she's made it. She's made it easy. She she really deserves the reputation that precedes her. I mean, and I'm not just saying this because you're here. She is mm -hmm. too, you know? I mean, mm -hmm. if you read your work, she's working with a superstar just like you are. Thank so, you. I mean, you know, that that's something maybe to just, you know, think about yeah. just throughout all this. That's true. Thank you. That's nice of you to say. Thank you. No problem. Yeah. <laughs> uh, now, can you provide your synopsis or elevator pitch of what Sweet Soft Plenty Rhythm is about and let us know the inspiration behind it? Sure. So Sweet Soft Plenty Rhythm is about the women in a playboy, womanizer, Don Juan. There are all mm. kinds of words, right? Depending on your generation. Uh, they were using another word during my tour that starts with an F that yeah. I will not say in order <laughs> to be polite. Um, he's a playboy uh, musician uh, who doesn't want to be tied down, can't be tied down. Uh, we've, we've read these stories before, but the difference with this book is that the, the book is told from the perspective of the women in his life. So in the first chapter, he learns that the woman who's closest to his heart is pregnant. He leaves, right? Abandons that responsibility to, and, and sort of escapes through the other women in his life, either women he connects with anew, uh, women he goes back to. He also has a daughter and an ex-wife. So the idea here is... Um, he's trying to escape this responsibility by connecting with these women and they are uh, receiving him, but they're also kind of at the end of their rope, right? With this relationship. Yeah. So the idea here is um, we're, we're following his arc. What's he going to do about this pregnancy? And we're following these mini arcs. What are these women going to do about this relationship? Um, and I was inspired because no surprise. Uh, I was involved with a musician and he was slippery, yeah. uh, to say the least. And, you know, as a writer, and I know I'm not alone in this, you're kind of inhabiting your life and observing it. And I kept wondering, you know, why am I doing this? Why are so many of my friends involved with, with men, um, who are not giving them what, what they want, why do we keep doing this to ourselves? And at the time I was reading a book about a womanizer and the perspective was from him, right? Mm. So it was his story and all of the women were pining for him and they didn't have as much dimension. Their stories, their journeys, their lives, their wants, their fears, their traumas were secondary. And so I wanted to flipped, flip the script flip the camera 
because I feel like we've been telling ourselves stories about these kind of men for centuries and we don't talk about the women. Yeah. And so I wanted to talk about that relationship from their perspective. I wanted to humanize them, give them dimension, show that there's more to them than just being fantasies. Uh, and so that's that's where it came from. Yeah. As a um, member of Cap Alpha Psi Fraternity Incorporated, a trumpet <laughs> player and lover of jazz, I, I felt personally attacked throughout. Um, <laughs> you know, I enjoy it now. I'm just <laughs> This is what this whole interview is about. <laughs> well, you can tell me. Okay, so what do you think? Did I do? Oh yeah, <laughs> yeah. Oh, I got, man. I got like, a, I got a good question in there too. Uh, okay, yeah, and and even um, I really loved how his relationship with the trumpet, because mm -hmm. as, as a as a trumpet player, uh, I, I didn't want anyone to touch it, and you know, it's a, it's a thing. Yep. So I, yeah, I, I he he. Puts a seatbelt around it in the back seat yeah. of the car. Yep. Yeah, his daughter sitting next to him, and she can do what she wants. But the yep. trumpet, the trumpet, yeah, safe. Even my first right. one, it was a terrible looking trumpet too. I, I love that thing. Oh my goodness, but yeah. Well, you know, I I get that, and that's one of the reasons. You know, I really hope. I like to talk to musicians. I like to talk to. Um, to men about this book because it was important to me that he wasn't just some slime, yeah. you know, that, that he has dimension that you understand where, why these women are attracted to him. But also um, I don't want to write a character who's flat and I get it. I mean, my love for writing, I mean, there's no physical representation of it like a trumpet, but my love for writing is, is on on par, right? It's the same yeah. level. So I get that. I get yeah. that kind of devotion. Where, where. I mean, in in the spirit of me being the pushback king, I mean, can't we say sweet, soft, plenty rhythm is a manifestation of your love of writing? Mm -hmm. It definitely yeah. is. You I have mean, your my trumpet whole, now. Yeah, I do. That's right. Yeah. I have a trumpet. Yeah. I have I'm a trumpet. I'm gonna I'm gonna put this to. on a seatbelt. <laughs> See? <laughs> yeah, yeah, it is in the back Maybe. seat of my car. And, yeah. and it's and it's what it's been mm -hmm. published since what September I believe. End of September, so, yeah. So you might have to get it a baby seat, you know. Mm -hmm. That's right. Get it right. a little bottle since get it's still young. Get a little scarf when it gets cold. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yep, all of it. Yeah, that's you know? true. That's true. I I hadn't even thought about it, but you're right. I have a physical representation. Here it is. There's my love. There we are. Yep. I and, like that. Um, Thank you. No problem. And um, speaking of this, this love, right? I always like to ask about these because they are there. We should talk about them. And that would be your dual epigraph um, in Sweet, Soft, Plenty Rhythm. So jazz music is to be played. Sweet, soft, plenty rhythm. And the chicks didn't live with that horn. Um, mm -hmm. Can you speak to us about these quotes from Jelly Roll Morton and Louis Armstrong, respectively, and how they ended up becoming the dual epigraph for uh, Sweet Soft Plenty Rhythm. Sure. So um, I am really not good at titles. And so I was trying to come up with a title for the book. And um, so I just was Googling quotes about jazz. That was one of the many things I did to try to find, you know, um, language. And I came across that quote and I just, the idea of sweet, soft, plenty rhythm. I mean, that to me is just a beautiful string of words together. 
And I felt like it really captured the tone and the feel of the book. And also not only music, obviously, as, as Jelly Roll Morton said, but love, right? Love should be played too, sweet, soft, plenty rhythm. Um, so that was one of the reasons that I, I chose it and I wanted to include that uh, epigraph in the book itself, not only so, so readers got where the title came from, but also, um, I don't know, it's, just, it's a nice way to, I think, to enter the story and the yeah. world. And then uh, one of the books that I used for research, because I'm not actually a musician, I love music, but I'm not a musician. So uh, I did a lot of research to, you know, as you were saying, kind of understand what's a trumpet feel like to play? What's it sound like when, when you're coming up with a song? What happens to you? Right. I understand when you're inspired with a story, but what what happens when you're inspired by music and what's happening in the club when you're playing that impacts your sound? All kinds of things I wanted to research. And so one of my mentors at my MFA program recommended these books by Nat Hentoff. Mm. And one of them, I'm not remembering the title, just had a bunch of quotes from uh, jazz musicians or people connected. I think it was like a chapter on Charlie Parker and then a bunch of quotes from people, including Charlie Parker. Um, and uh, and the somewhere in there was, or maybe I'm thinking of a different book, but at any rate, there was a, a long section, I guess, about Louis Armstrong. And he was talking about his life and how the music affected it. And just, just this idea, right, that music, like we were talking about, was getting in the way of his love life, in certain, right? It was impacting it, not always positively. And just the idea that chicks, you know, couldn't put up with the horn. They couldn't, they couldn't take it. <laughs> I just thought that perfectly encapsulated circus, right? Yeah. A line like that shows, it, it explains everything, yeah. right? My devotion and my commitment is to this music embodied by this horn. And the women could not own, couldn't put up with the devotion that I was giving to that, to that music. They couldn't put up with, uh, you know, in some ways, the music itself and the characters in this book. And uh, I don't know, I just felt like it was it was perfect. And it's just it has a ring to it, especially after the Jelly Roll Morton quote. That's mm -hmm. really poetic and beautiful. Mm -hmm. And then you've got something as simple as like, they just didn't like my horn. Yeah, they just couldn't put up with. And this is what where my heart lies. And they couldn't they couldn't yeah. get with it. So they were yeah. de-emphasized. Reminds me of um, Robert Glasper's uh, Everything's Beautiful, which is inspired by literally a Miles Davis quote. When mm -hmm. you're having a conversation that's really similar yeah. to the conversation that those two um, epigraphs are having with each other, right? Yeah. Um, and it's cool because like like that album, this yeah. book comes out of, you know, out of that, right? So it, it makes perfect sense when you think of like sweet, soft, plenty rhythm, right? Like. Mm -hmm when you hear those jazz musicians explain like yeah. the feeling that they have with jazz, it's, it's elusive. Um, you know, it, it has plenty of rhythm, of course. Mm -hmm. Right. It, it's sweet. It's smooth. It's that's, that's kind of how they are. You yeah. know what I mean? So, yeah. yeah. And, you know, I think, I mean, I love pretty much every genre of music is represented on my iPhone and my collection, my Spotify list, but there's something to me about jazz there's lots of things, but one of the things is 
and again, I'm not a musician. This could me be me just mythologizing it and glorifying it. <laughs> but it just feels like the devotion required of mastering that form, you know, yeah. um, and the in, in, intensity that jazz musicians feel for the music seems to be, uh, seems to be so much deeper, right? I, I feel like I don't hear about rock or other types of musicians talking about their relationship to their instruments and to the music the way jazz musicians do. Yeah. which is one of the reasons I wanted him to be a jazz musician. I wanted Circus to be a jazz musician. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I could be wrong. And I'm sure lots of musicians would be like, uh-uh, I feel the same way. But I was just thinking the closest thing I could think to it outside of uh, the genre would be like Prince's love for musicality. Yes. Um, it would be like the closest. His love, the way he would like sit around the theater to make yeah. sure the sound reaches everywhere. Yeah. Um, would be the closest I could think of outside of it. I was at the Miami Book Fair and there was a woman who, I forget her name, I, my brain is not working right now. She wrote a book about music and how music impacts you. She used to work really closely with Prince and she spent a lot of time, thank God, talking about Prince. I was just like, yeah. you can just do this for a few hours. And one of the things that she said about him was that he was hyper creative. Yeah. Um, and that he wasn't, he didn't sit down and decide to write a song. It was just always coming. Right. So they'd be done for the day. He'd go to the bathroom and come back and say, I'm sorry. It just happened again. And we got to we have to go back to the studio. So I, I agree with you. Yeah. yeah. And, and I want to shout both of you out, because when you said Prince just now, Kelly, I was literally going to say the same thing if you didn't, because mm -hmm. that is who I thought of. Like when, when mm -hmm. she was speaking about when Laura was speaking about like just individuals and just their relationship to music and like a strong passion for it and i yeah. just love like seeing some of prince's shady moments on youtube like i remember <laughs> there's this one thing where he's like i make music so i don't really listen to a lot of like right. this stuff that's out here now yeah. right you know yeah, yeah. <laughs> and isn't there another video where he's with a woman and some current pop stars doing one of his songs and he's like check her out trying to sing <laughs> my song which you know if there's anybody he earned it yeah. Say, yeah yeah please you definitely he earned, earned it. it you know he's, he's my like, favorite he's yeah my favorite. i have a ton of print stuff in here i like every album on vinyl well not all of them but all the ones that you know get the get the party going i have the mirror on vinyl in here with me that was the the one celebrity death where i had to pull over to the side of the road and cry i was like i can't yeah, I just yeah. broke my heart. Yeah, no, nah, that was yeah, that was crazy. That was crazy. Like him and him and Michael Jackson are like, it and was it was like live forever. Yeah, you know. Yeah, yeah. And and I also was gonna say too, you um, and just shout out to the authors who are doing this to us lately. You completely destroyed one of my questions I have. Oh yeah, and it was and that that's like a beautiful moment when it happens. It's oh. it's funny because when you said that yesterday, it. I love it now. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> When you said yesterday, I was like, fuck, that probably doesn't feel good. But then it just happened. And I was like, oh, that's actually kind of dope that that just happened. Because I was going to ask you literally the question yeah. that was presented to Circus by Angela, which is why jazz, right? Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. you just told us why jazz. So now that's uh, that, that's really cool that you did that. Well, that's, the, I mean, what I said is one of the reasons. Um, but I can elaborate. I mean, part of it is is everything that we've already said. The, the mastery, the devotion, the uh, 
intricacy of the music. Um, I mean, I think musicians in generally, no offense, right? They have a reputation for not necessarily being as easy to pin down in a romantic relationship, but I think especially jazz musicians, and I think part of it is, like I said, I really need this time. I really need this time to work on my craft. But I think the other piece, and I wrote about this in, a, in an essay that was published last year, jazz is does not hold the place in the culture it used to. Um, when I was writing this book and I told people he was a jazz musician for the reasons that we talked about, the one question I always got was, oh, when, when does this take place? Yeah. Right? And then the second one was, why, why jazz? Yeah. So the rest of us know people are still playing jazz. People are still listening to jazz. Mm -hmm. But generally, it's, it doesn't, like I said, it doesn't hold the place. And I liked this idea that you have this guy that's devoted to an art form that a lot of people, I mean, they, they've been saying that jazz is dead for a long time. Mm -hmm. But here we have this guy who's devoting his, his life um, to an art form that not only the culture around him isn't really giving the same attention to as it used to, but the women in his life are going, why jazz? Like there's the same, I think there's as much attraction to him because of the jazz as there is confusion as to why he plays it. And yeah. I thought that would be more interesting if he was a rapper, if he was a rock musician, an R&B singer, we we get that right but the idea of women going i don't know what it is i'm just hearing the sounds i don't know what it's doing to me i don't quite understand it but it's drawing me yeah. i thought that that was much more interesting one more nerd thing about jazz too but it rewires the brain so when the women are talking about like what is happening to them mm -hmm. like when they're watching him play yeah it, just, it had me thinking about that but i'll move on i'll move on no <laughs> i love that that that's another reason that's another mm -hmm. reason why jazz yeah 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 all right so love is lonely tip uh just you and another person and the rest of the world falls away i want to grow with someone please people don't grow you she said keep playing music create things making grows you Maybe what you need is something new to do that matters. Now, this is the uh, infamous Maggie speaking to Tip early on in the text, but I think it's a thread that ties all the characters in some way. Mm -hmm. You think about the love parallelogram uh, because mm -hmm. Cyrus, his mama called him Cyrus, I'm going to call him right. Cyrus, right. doesn't <laughs> have a love triangle. My man got a love parallelogram. Okay. Um, <laughs> but when you think about all of the players, I think they all either keep playing music, right, in, in, yeah. in uh, circuses uh, stead. Uh, they create things, right, whether they're literally, like, making humans or, right. or other things. And then some some find something new. Yeah. Are these the proper ways to deal with love for these characters, or is Maggie ultimately wrong? Um, that's a really interesting question, and I'm just going to start saying things, and we'll mm -hmm. see... See what comes if out. I get to something I actually believe or mm -hmm. know for sure, I guess what I would say is the answer is probably different for every person on the planet and definitely for all of these characters. Mm -hmm. I find myself, I'm working on my next book, 
I'm also exploring love in a very different way, but love is, is, is central to what I'm exploring thematically. And I think that regardless of how well love is working out for you in your life, there still has to be an individual life experience that you are also leading simultaneously. And for an artist, that's art. Um, for a uh, bartender that's continuing to enjoy that work, maybe it's just me, but I guess as I get older, I kind of feel like there are two primary drivers of human satisfaction. Um, and I think the first piece comes from connection and love, which is really hard to control, really hard to maintain, especially nowadays. And yeah. then work, however we define it. And those of us who are either artists or find some calling that really feels connected to us, we might be lucky, right? Because that work, you know, if we are lucky enough to be able to do it, um, can, can give our lives shape and meaning. And so I think what Maggie means, I think Maggie is a very independent person. Maggie is not someone who needs love, needs a partner. Yeah. So she might be, you know, a little less apt to, to, to give love its due in, in her world. But I do think her point is valid that no matter what's going on, you need to be doing work. You need to be finding what uh, an externalization of your identity mm. through what you put into the world right? And do that because it's just as meaningful. And when you don't have the other thing or you lose the other thing, love, you always have the work. Yeah. And I know for me, that's true. I know for a lot of my friends who are dealing with heartbreak or unhappy marriages or whatever, I keep wanting to say, find something about you to do because yeah. you always have that. Um, so I don't know if that answers your question. I think so. Yeah. I think okay, so. Good. Good. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Good. Reggie, you have that uh the eyebrows. No, no. I'm I'm just I was just agreeing. Like, yeah, I mean, I, I agree with it. I mean, mm -hmm. I think even um just you know, I just like the first off, the two primary like yeah. forms of mm -hmm. human satisfaction. Like I was like yeah. just yeah. writing that down, like as you yeah. said it. Mm -hmm. Um and I'm just thinking of like how, you know, I'm, you know, Achille and I are both in, you know, relationships or whatever. Mm -hmm. And it's like, you know, this kind of makes even being in a relationship better, like having just yeah. books of pop culture learning, just books and literature. Yeah. Right? Having this other thing too, like when I'm not with my girlfriend and our cats, right? Like I, I always have books. I'm never bored. Right. Like right. look around, you know? Right. And then you have something to talk about you have something to share always, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, I, I'm not in a relationship right now, but my hope is, you know, the next relationship I'm in, not necessarily that he's doing work that aligns with what I do, but that we both love, we have some kind of passion, we have some kind of work that means something to us so we can come together and share it with each other. Yeah. And so um, obviously there's so much else about life that is important. But to me, love and work, right? 
that's uh, and then there are things, you know, connected to that money and the luxuries or freedom it gives you and whatever else. But it, it really seems to boil down to that for me. Early in the book, Circus praises Maggie for being the only easy and this is his words, not mine. So don't get on me, y'all. The only <laughs> I wrote it. I'll female, take ownership. <laughs> yeah, the yeah. only easy female. He's like, I would say woman, but hey, I can imagine Circus saying female. Right. So just yes. want to throw that out there. Yes. So um, can you speak to us about the potential setbacks of being the easy person in someone's life a little more? Sure. So I have had a lot of men in my life, and I don't mean only men that I've been involved with. I actually, and I hope this comes through in the book, uh, and this is going to sound like an excuse or an excuse or trying to get myself, you know, Anyway, I actually really love men. Some of my favorite, some of my best relationships, whether it's my family, whether it's my friends, whether it is my romantic partners. I, I Most of my romantic partners, I still have relationships with. One of them came to my, my launch in New York. Um, and so I know men. And I think that's hopefully one of the reasons that I was, was able to draw a circus in a way that was felt authentic, hopefully, and three-dimensional. But a lot of the men who've been in my life have said, all any man wants is a woman who will put up with his stuff. Yeah. And that st has stuck with me. And part of it is, well, I'll just talk about it in the context of circus, unless you want to go in other directions. I mean, hey, we, that, we're, we're podding. So <laughs> like, we can go, we can do all the directions. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, in some ways, I think that's true of all of us, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Because what it's basically saying is I want somebody who's going to recognize who I am, warts and all, and accept it all. And, uh, you know, be comfortable with my, my weak moments uh, and help me hopefully grow. And I think sometimes when men have said that, that's the piece that doesn't seem as fair. There's a difference between recognize who I am, I'm human, I'm flawed, and recognize who I am, I'm human, I'm flawed, and you just have to deal with it if you want to be in my life. And I think that's circus, unfortunately, right? Yeah. His thought is, you know, a woman who's going to come with me. This happens in the first chapter when he's with uh, Maggie in Miami. He, he brings Maggie because she's easy, meaning she's not going to complain about things. If he wants to go off and do something else, she's going to be fine with that. She recognizes because she's also a musician that when he goes to play, he wants to be on his own. She lets him do that. Now, it doesn't mean Maggie is weak. Yeah. To me, it means Maggie's got her own stuff to do. She's like, oh, we're going to Miami? Yeah, you go do your thing. I'm going to go play in that club. I'm going to go to that restaurant. I've got plenty of things to do. Um, and so I think in his mind, an easy woman, it's not about sex. It's about somebody who's not going to pressure me to do something I don't want to do. Yeah. And she's that for him because she's got all of her own stuff. Of course, there are some women who are easy in that way because they they don't want to rock the boat because they still want that guy to like them. And I challenge those women to not do that anymore. Yeah. Um, but yeah, to me, that's that's where circus is coming from. 
I want a woman who's not going to ask me to behave any differently than I want to behave. Yeah. And, and there's, there's a couple things there. One, I, I love the like reclaiming of easy, right. Mm-hmm. And, and making it something different from like the, the conventional thought, which is just right. sex. Right. Like right. I like how easy means a, a lot more than that. And and what that also speaks to is just the age, the age old adage to me of, you know, people taking your kindness as a weakness, you know, mm-hmm. like, like you see how, you know, I won't get into too much, but like, you know, circus, Circus doesn't do right by Maggie. You, you mm-hmm. know what I mean? And it's like right. Maggie's the one who you should have been doing right to. Like when someone is like loose with you like that. Right. right? And not right. like just pressing your every move. It's right. like this is the person you're supposed to hold on to. Like, look mm-hmm. at this. Yeah. Right? This is how you have the easy life. Right. Well, and part of it, I think, is, you know, in that first chapter, it starts with him looking at another woman. And mm-hmm. as he's sitting next to Maggie. Yeah. And to my mind, this is not part of their conversation because Maggie's got other concerns, right? She's pregnant and now she's decided she's going to tell him. But she knows he's watching. But A, I don't think she takes this part of him that seriously. And B, I don't think she cares because a, she knows, well, I know who I am. I know what I have to offer. And if you want to go run down the beach and chase another woman, that's on you. But also, I don't really need you yeah. in that way. You know, you are just as temporary in some ways. Maybe yeah. not temporary, but you are just, she, she just doesn't need that kind of attention and connection she and i think what comes i mean of course men should not be checking out other women women so obviously when they're with a woman that they care about but at the same time uh maggie doesn't need his constant attention maggie doesn't does not compete with other women um and so uh yeah so i think that that's where she's coming from on that yeah it made me um think of uh this cool song that I love uh, by Deontay Hitchcock. And then he opens up, he's like, um, we used to laugh and carry on like love could pay to rent or something. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then the second time he comes back, he says, um, ain't no way you can love me just the way I am. I must got to get rid of something. Like, mm-hmm. you know? yeah, yeah. <laughs> like those two, those that makes balls. a lot of sense. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and, yeah. and you know, I think I, I wish I would have thought of that. I think that that, makes a lot of sense. Although I don't think circus, at least in the beginning, you know, that's part of his journey, mm-hmm. I think is yeah. recognizing as, as Maggie says to him later, you know, we are the same, you know, I, it's not easy to pin me down. I want to be free too, but I also recognize if I am asking you to be in my life and if I'm asking you to share your heart, to share my bed, to share your time, I owe you something courtesy at the very least, right? Yeah. Respect. And that's something I don't think he feels he owes anybody, um, at least in the beginning. And I challenge him to to think of it differently over the course of the book. And, and you know, one thing that, that I'm thinking of, too, when it comes to like Sweet Soft, Plenty Rhythm is, you know, as you talked about circus just now is like the reactions to transgressions. Right. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I particularly think of that when it comes to circus and Pia. Mm-hmm. And and just how, you know, once again, not to get too specific, one person is allowed to choose 
you know, himself, right? Circus is allowed to choose right. himself in a way that Pia is not, right? right. And, you know, I, I thought of that also, you know, I thought it was fitting mm-hmm. to read this and to also see you in a picture with like Tayari Jones recently, right? Because I mm-hmm. think of an American marriage and yeah. just people's reaction to Celestial mm-hmm. choosing herself in that work, right? Right. And I wanted you to, I guess, talk to us a little bit about just like writing women choosing themselves, right? And And just... I guess what you're hoping to explore, you know, by doing that in uh, Sweet Soft Plenty Rhythm. Um, it's funny that you mentioned that because I reread American Marriage in preparation for being in, in discussion with her and felt like celestial. I was like, oh, she would have been in conversation with these women for sure. Um, you know, I think it's I think it's really interesting because, and we all know this, right? When women make choices that men have been making forever, there's a lot more judgment. There's a lot more criticism. And this is why a man like Circus exists, right? This is why somebody like Louis Armstrong can say, the chicks didn't live with that horn. And everybody goes, well, but he's Louis Armstrong, right? Women were not given that same freedom to choose ourselves in relationship, I mean, it happens so often with women, right? Part of, I think, I have a lot of women in my life who are single and I'm talking to them a lot about the, the relationships they have with men. And very often they're in situations where I just wanna say, just tell him how this is gonna work for you or needs to work for you, just act. And the fear of losing that man, right? In in order to choose what she needs is so terrifying to so many women in a way that, it, and I know I'm not suggesting that men don't have their own anxieties and terrors when it comes to relationship, but I do think men learn that you, you, it's okay, right? It's right to choose yourself and we will support you. Your choices will be validated by the culture um, in a way that I, I think women don't have. It's interesting. I was in an interview uh, a couple of weeks ago and we were talking about all of these movies and stories. What's the spike? Mo Better Blues, for example, right? Of movies or stories about some man who is a genius and he mistreats all the people in his life, especially the women in his life. But because he's a genius, it's all excused, right? It's all the, the price of admission if you want to be in this person's life. But when women are demanding or rude or even aggressive, they're divas, they're, they're crazy, right? They don't get to be geniuses in the same way. And so I guess I feel like, yeah, I, want, I wanted all of these women, I wanted to invite all of these women to do something about this relationship. And some of them were going to liberate themselves in ways that the reader could get behind. And some of them were not. But we, and I know it's uncomfortable and I don't want to give away what happens with Pia. In fact, I just had a conversation about it with somebody who was horrified and we had to stop the interview in the middle so we could have spoilers so she could understand Mm -hmm. why I did what I did with Pia. Mm -hmm. But the, the reality to me is, you know, this is true. Yeah. What, what Pia chooses is real. And I'm not saying it's 
uh, a good moral choice, but um, people do it. And choosing yourself sometimes is really ugly. I say that all the time. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. If it can happen in the real world, it should yeah. happen in the book. Exactly. Even my favorite part of uh, this, this really happens is um, when Pia's with Fitz and mm -hmm. uh, she's waiting on uh, Buddy to come and he's like, not coming. <laughs> right. <laughs> so and so. And I was like, oh, that's, that's so weird, yeah, Fitz. That's so weird. Yeah. <laughs> You know, it's funny. People don't talk to me about that, that chapter very often, um, but I really love that chapter. And one of the reasons is that's one of the few instances that actually came from real life. I went to a funeral and saw a friend and I'm like, you look really good for this funeral. Yeah. And she kept talking about, I won't mention his name, but you think John is going to be here. Where's John? Is John mm -hmm. coming? I was like, are you at a funeral <laughs> to, <laughs> to, to hook up with somebody you were with 20 years ago? And she mm -hmm. was. Yeah. But And that's the gift for writers. It's like, thank you. Mm -hmm. You just gave me a story. What space does Circus's father occupy in his life uh, and in his actions? Uh, as Circus finally starts to kind of open up to Coco um, mm -hmm. after their interaction with Maggie, she asks him specifically about the scars that other women have asked him about. Mm -hmm. uh, and he says his father and some matches. Mm -hmm. uh, obviously, there are things lingering there because he mm -hmm. often talks about his father and, and yeah. other, um, you know, um, big parts. Right. But throughout the book. Uh, but this particular tidbit sticks out to me. So can you talk about the space Circus's father plays in his life and his actions and how maybe it trickles into his relationship with Coco? I'm loving this conversation because you guys are asking me questions that <laughs> not a lot of people ask me and you're, you're noticing things that uh, I'm really excited you're noticing. Um, so there were two pieces um, that I kind of peppered in there uh, or, or threw in there that I, I wanted to be really subtle about. And part of it was the scars. And one of them was the scars and one of them was his father um, and his mother to a lesser extent. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that, again, I haven't really talked about it, but I hope people notice is that whenever women ask about, ask him about the scars, he tells them a different story. Mm -hmm. And part of it is, I don't want you to know me like that. And when he finally does tell Coco, I mean, it's his daughter. And throughout the course of the book, that relationship evolves. And part of it is him being a little bit more upfront with her. Um, so he tells her where, where those scars came from. And I feel, and, and I might be, um, in American fiction, I feel like, and not only with books, but I feel like it happens on TV and in movies a lot too. Um, there's always the scene that's supposed to explain why the character is who they became, right? So it's a murderer. This is an extreme version, but we're gonna watch the show. This guy is a murderer. Then we're gonna have one scene that goes back to his childhood where somebody killed his dog in front of him. And that's why mm -hmm. he's a murderer. And I feel like that's a really common, uh, you know, piece to a lot of the fiction we have. And I wanted to avoid that. Yeah. I didn't want to have a moment where we learn why Circus became a womanizer, but I wanted to, you know, throw something in there. And that's why I hinted at 
a relationship with his father that was challenging. Um, and I don't know how much of it to reveal. I don't think it spoils really anything, but if you, mm -hmm. if you want the insider information, I kind of saw Circus as a really sensitive uh, boy who uh, was with a, a father, who had a father who was very domineering, um, not affectionate, not loving. Um, I kind of imagined, and I don't remember where I got this, if I read it somewhere, something similar, but I imagined him gravitating toward music and his father using that to sort of control him, you know, not supporting it, but really kind of trying to take the music away from him. But then his father was also a womanizer. There was mm -hmm. a scene, there's a scene in the book where yeah. he sees a car that reminds him of, you know, going up to being left in a car while his, his father is at somebody else's house. And so, like I said, I didn't want to have that scene where this is supposed to explain everything, but I wanted to have something in there so you're getting a full picture. Yeah. And not to suggest that uh, a man whose father is a womanizer or who has the background that I imagine for Circus is going to go the direction he did. But it's one way, right, that somebody becomes like that. Yeah. Um, but I also feel, you know, so I do think that there's trauma there. There's abuse there. It's not necessarily there to justify his behavior. But to and not even necessarily to explain it but just to say this is one of the pieces which yeah. could be just as important as the fact that he's really sexy and great looking right i think and again this is my understanding and and kinship i feel toward men i mean if you're a really great looking sexy person it's probably a little bit harder <laughs> than it is for the rest of us to not explore opportunities yeah and so i think that that's as much a part of who he is or or maybe it's a blending right this is the background he has and then he comes into the world and i know men like this it's like i, I realized at 18 i realized at 21 that women love me and it's been really hard not to be open to that and yeah. i understand and so i think that that's uh it's just part of of who he is but yeah yeah, yeah. What it you're seeing about his father makes sense to me. It had that feel of like, you know, like you said, it just is what it is type thing. Yeah. Not necessarily that I'm moving like this because of that. You know, it is what it is. Mm -hmm. It has affected me, yeah. but it's not why I, why I am who I am. You know what I mean? That's yeah, kind of yeah. how, I, how I laid on him. That's why I didn't want to push on it. That's why I didn't want to emphasize it. And you could also, you know, if in the future there's a book about Coco, right? Or if we were going to write a book about Coco... Mm -hmm. she's because she's going to be who she is at 20 or 40 years old because of him in a way. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. So um, it, you know, his father and him and her father and her, there's a little mm -hmm. torch passing, yeah. I think. Yeah. No, it just, that, that just makes me think of the com the, just the conversation I'm always having where it's like, just because like someone who does like bad deeds consistently like has layers, that doesn't mean like the artist who created that character is mm -hmm. like endorsing oh, yeah. them. It's, it's simply right. just saying like, Hey, we're all complicated. Cause that that's the ultimate truth. Um, you, well, all I was going to say is the chapter um, where Coco gets, a, uh, follows the marathon bomber. Yeah. Um, that, I've had to talk about that in a lot of different contexts. 
And I remember I, I wrote it as just a story because um, I was living in Boston after that happened. And I read it at an event and somebody asked me why I wrote it. And it was a longer conversation, but my point was, you know, obviously I am not justifying what happened. If you, if you read the whole story, the whole section, you know it's about a girl and her dad, right? Mm -hmm. But also fiction doesn't work when people just make great, healthy choices. Uh, and Who wants like to read that, you know? And being mm -hmm. honest, I mean, look at like true crime is like mm -hmm. what the number one podcast genre. So, yeah. so it's not like it's not reality. Right. Like Coco being into and just right. curious about, you know, this right. guy. And it happened. That's where the story came from, because I was in Boston and that was another news story that all of these girls and I went on Twitter. And I was like, Whoa, mm -hmm. it was happening. Girls were like, he's so cute. He's this. He's that. He could never have done it. Mm -hmm. But she's they're girls. You got right? jail bay, you got right. example yeah. for that. Um, yeah. I, like um, there were there were some people who were like really into like Evan Peters more because of the job he did uh playing Dahmer uh, right. recently too. So yeah, right. no, that's and as as storytellers, part of I think what a lot of us do, we're we're curious about people, right? We're curious not only about their moments of triumph, but their darkness and and like I said, the, the choices that they don't make. I thought it was Again, there was a part of me living in Boston that was was terrorized, right? Because it was an act of terrorism. Mm -hmm. And then there was a part of me that was a writer going, why is this happening? Yeah. Why are these girls feeling like this? And then I'm working on a book and I think that's a, that's a girl who's really struggling. That's a girl who's really got a hole in her soul. And that's how Coco emerged. Mm -hmm. And um, that's what her story is, is... I, I have a huge gap in my life and it's being filled by men, boys, right? Who probably shouldn't be filling it, but I have no other way to deal with the extremes of, of uh, feelings I have. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, you were, you were speaking on like us picking up on little subtlety. So hopefully this will be one too, right? One thing I noticed is the gut and gut feelings like mm -hmm. throughout uh, the work that characters were having yeah. just in, in different instances. Um, and I wanted to know, like, I guess, what was the, what was the work you were hoping to do in Sweet Soft Plenty Rhythm with gut feelings? And, and I'm curious, is it supposed to stand in for like a physical manifestation of like intuition creeping mm -hmm. in or, you know, just just what uh, what were you hoping to do with the gut and gut feelings? Yeah, that's a great another great question that I haven't been asked. Um, I think that. I don't want to suggest that I don't want it to be as flat as always trust your intuition girls. But at the same time, we know, right. We know when something is wrong for us, even if it's a moment or a conversation. And I think in some of the relationships in this book, maybe the women don't need to cut off ties right? But they need to pay attention when something inside of them is telling them, this isn't right. He shouldn't have said that. He shouldn't have done that. I want this. And it's eating away at me. And I think part of it is just on a craft level. Um, I want to be in there 
right? I want to be in the bodies and hearts and spirits of the characters as a reader as well. And so just saying she knew that he shouldn't have done that is not as powerful to me as a reading or writing experience as feeling it somewhere in her body. Because we all have, mine is right here, right? In the center of my chest, like it's, this is wrong, right? And so anybody else who feels it there knows what I'm talking about when I direct their attention to it. And I think that that is a much more, that's a richer reading experience. Um, and, and there was someone, I think it was actually in a reading group, a, a book club who asked about how I describe emotions so specifically. And that's part of the reason, right? I remember I had a roommate once who, bless her, I found really boring. And I remember once I knew why she was boring because she was telling me a story and she was just telling me what happened. She didn't put me, she was like, oh, you know, and then I moved this and I hurt my arm. She didn't make me feel what it felt like when her arm hurt. She didn't make the voices of the people around her. She didn't tell me how it felt. And so I was just kind of listening versus experiencing it, right? It's the difference between somebody saying, I broke my arm and I laid on it this way. It moved that way. I heard the bone crack and you're, oh, stop. Mm. I think as writers, we've got to do that, right? That's yeah. what brings the reader in. So that's part of the reason, like we all know that feeling in the gut. And so I want to you know, poke at it so that you are feeling what the characters are feeling. Age plays a role similar to the Grim Reaper mm -hmm. uh, for both Circus and one of the lesser characters, uh, Peach, as well. Mm -hmm. um, and I really felt like her relationship with age put her in kind of like a foil position, drawing attention to the encroaching age of Circus. Uh -huh. um, Peach finds herself watching this young woman buried alive and looking mm -hmm. at the literal personification of that in Mrs. Merrill. Uh, showing up to the bar right uh, when I think about the way that Mrs. Merrill's words hit Peach it made me think more about Circus's interaction with Panos uh, early on and the way everybody talks about jazz with him yeah what is the role of age in these two characters life and why was that something you decided to play around with you guys are seriously the best you are the best <laughs> I love that I tell Reggie that all the time we are all ready to get <laughs> you guys yeah. are you are um so the first piece is Circus turning 40. Mm -hmm. um, and that, you know, 40, I'm, I'm past 40 now. So I know that that feeling that 40 is the end is not accurate, but it feels like it as you hit it. Um, and especially if you are, um, you know, uh, starting to show signs of aging, which most of us are by that point. Um, and especially if you're used to being cute, like Circus is. Um, and also if you feel like there's a window that's closing on your dreams. And so that's why I wanted him to be at that age along with, you know, to, to really trigger the conflict in the story. And so then you've got these other characters um, who their relationship with age is, is different. Um, like you said, Peach is about 27, 28. Mm -hmm. um, and I think 30 is another age, right? When you get to that you know, between 25 and 30, where you're starting to feel older, you're starting to feel like maybe I should get my act together in some way. Um, so she both, I think in his mind, represents youth. Um, but I think, I think that there's still a sense of um, 
freedom for her. And I liked what you said about Mrs. Merrill because that was my intention for her. Mm -hmm. That was another moment that actually came from real life. Weirdly, I was getting like a massage or a facial or something. And the woman who was providing the service was a lot younger than me, but she said, you know, once you have children, your body, your life, nothing is yours anymore. And once again, I said, thank you. <laughs> and so I liked that dynamic, right? And I think that's so common, especially between women. Unfortunately, we use it against each other instead of going, we're all in this together. Because there are two, you can either not, you know, you can either age or you can be finished. You have no choice around aging, right? And so this dynamic between, you know, Mrs. Merrill, who has had children, she's older, she knows that her husband is going down to this bar to stare at and flirt with this younger woman um, that's painful to her. But Peach is a character, she's a bartender that uh, works at one of the bars where circus plays in Boston. She's this, and this was an example of a character that I wanted to kind of extract from the narrative. She's the bimbo, she's the mm -hmm. easy, she's the body, right? And so you don't take her seriously because she's sexy and she's, pretty and voluptuous. And unfortunately, a lot of times those women aren't taken seriously. So I wanted to take her seriously. But, um, you know, she's also aware of, especially because of the way circus treats her, that she is just a body. And so part of what I think is happening in that chapter is you've got this woman who is the ideal, in American culture at least, of what a female body and what female sexual desirability looks like. Then you have a woman who's past her prime, right? And there's this uh, con conflicted dynamic between them. But then you also have this woman who is literally, her body is being buried, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. And in a way, I, it does not bring the, those other two women together. But hopefully for the reader, right, there's that understanding, right, of, of in some ways, the... Uh, the need to retrieve our bodies in a way as women or to, to own them. And that's one of the things that I wanted to do in, in Peach's chapter, yeah. right? If we're going to demonize this body, like she says, you know, the, the same men who want to mount her, the, or however I said it, uh, the night before want to dismiss her as soon as the morning comes and circus sexualizes her. He objectifies her and I wanted to give her her body back, right? And part of it was setting up this dynamic between all three of those women in that chapter. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. so I hope it comes through. And I hope that, that that felt messy, but hopefully you hear what I'm saying. No, no, you, you, it, it all makes sense. And, um, you know, I, I like that phrase too, give her her body back. That was, mm -hmm. uh, that was really fly. And, yeah, and that was one of the scenes... You know, I was just saying it wasn't like a, this corny way when people sometimes when people say, yeah, that, yeah. it doesn't like it doesn't happen organically like it'll yeah. feel force, but it wasn't. You know, I, I really like that, too. But go ahead, Reggie, my bad. I yeah, no. And, and I'm just thinking of how like I'm not even gonna lie, like and, and this doesn't really typically happen to me with books, but like when there was like a visceral kind of like reaction I had when I was like in the mind of Peach. And you overhear Circus kind of say what he said, like in the yeah. other room. Yeah, I was kind of like, "Damn, Circus!" <laughs> like, and you know, and, you know? and you know, that's why Peach 
so everybody's favorite character is either Coco's number one and then Maggie, but a lot of people like Peach too. And I think that one of my reasons, I had a lot of reasons for creating a character like her. And one of them is because of that, right? That there are a lot of men who say that kind of thing about a woman like that. And so to hear, to have her hear that, that's devastating. Yeah. It's bad enough to hear somebody say, I'm not interested in anything more than your body, but to rob you of everything you are and reduce you to your body parts is devastating. And one of the things that I wanted to do with her um, is that I didn't want to make her like secretly reading Russian literature. You know, she doesn't need to be an academic and, and mm -hmm. brilliant and, and all these other things. She can be a woman who just really likes hanging out with her friends and working at a bar and you still need to take her seriously and not reduce her in that way. Oh yeah. man. And th that was another thing, mm -hmm. you know, with, with Peach too, where I was mm -hmm. like, I just really like where you were going with her when mm -hmm. you were like, she was worried about what am I about? Right. You know, like that was super cool to me because, yeah. you know, just one conversation that, you know, a lot of bookish people have, have like have is, right. you know, how do we deal with people who are like non-readers and stuff like mm -hmm. that, who are not like trying to, quote unquote, better themselves intellectually in right. some way. Yeah. And, you know, I always say, hey, if you don't read books, you just don't read books. That don't mean you're not learning. Right. It just might right. mean you're not learning from reading books or you, you might learn from documentaries. There are more than enough documentaries on TV, right. you know. Or that you don't have, I mean, th that was one of the things that I, I don't think Peach has ever thought about who am I and what do I have to offer until she heard him say that. Mm -hmm. Because, and, and that's what I think part of, again, the goal of this book and the, the, the reason to turn the camera on narratives we've been telling ourselves since the beginning of time and show how those narratives and that perspective reflects on the other people involved. Mm -hmm. And part of that is if you, if I'm a woman like Peach and you just come in, have sex with me and leave and talk to somebody else about me just being a pair of T's and an A, right? How could you do that to, to me? And so again, part of it is he forces her to ask herself those questions. And I didn't want her to go, I'm going to go back to school and get a PhD. I'm going to better myself. She doesn't need to do that. She is fine the way she is. And um, I wanted to show she's in community college and she, there is a body of knowledge that she has. There are interests that she does have, and they're just as valid as, as anything else. This is the choose your own adventure part of, mm -hmm. uh, of books of pop culture uh, that we've, I guess, just created on accident. Um, do you want to talk about children in phases or do you want to talk about, uh, what I'll call sermons? Hmm. Is this like a game show where you're not going to tell me what the, uh, okay. So yep. children in phases mm -hmm. or sermons? Sermons. Oh, man. <laughs> How about sermons? Okay, cool, cool. So. I noticed there's this there's this cool like kind of bookend I saw where you know in 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 the front of the book you have like Coco running into this random speech you can be the change mm -hmm. right and then there's this Pastor oh. Williams bit 
at the end too, right? Which I'll just I'll just leave that as is. There's this yeah. Pastor Williams bit at the end. Mm-hmm. And I wanted you to talk to us about these sermons, in particular, the the effect that they have on women mm-hmm. when women see them. Again, I didn't even pick up that uh, pick up on that in the book. <laughs> I didn't even think of it that way. Okay, that's good. Um, I think that you know, for whatever reason, whether it's our the way our conditioning or something natural to our biologies, um, that there is women are seem to be more apt to seek answers, right? To um, need a sense of, you know, spiritual guidance, whether it's astrology or religion, whatever, you know, especially now my mother is very, very into astrology. And I've been noticing how younger generations are taking it really seriously. And I asked my mom, you must be thrilled now that, that people are rolling their eyes at you. And so I think that there's, um, I think that there's uh, an innate desire in women to have answers, right? That's why we obsess. Why isn't he calling? And then we ask every one of our friends, and then we do tarot card readings, and then we talk to our therapist. I mean, et cetera. And I think that those two characters, and again, I didn't even think about that, but you're right. The, the daughter and the mother are both having moments where they're, they come across accidentally uh, men, right? Or at least representations of the culture who have answers for them, or at least an opportunity to be liberated from their struggles, to understand them and, and, and move forward with them. I hadn't really thought about that as book ending it or sermons, but I think what I was trying to do in both of those sections is have them, as I said, sort of come across it um, and to show, I'm trying to find a way to say it without sounding goofy, but you know, that the answers aren't really out there, you know, that the answers really are about going through a journey, which is what especially Coco does. Her sermon comes in that first section where we meet her. Doesn't really, I mean, she doesn't end up in that first chapter, like everything's fine now. In fact, everything gets a little bit worse and continues to get worse for her, Ah, right? And so, and it's true. Well, I won't spoil that, but, um, but that's the, that's the point maybe, right? Is that that isn't the answer. The answer is for you to keep walking through your life to keep trying to understand yourself, figure out what's going on, engage with what's coming, right? And hopefully uh, you're going to be able to come up with an answer. You're going to be able to kind of come up with a path that is is your own. Um, and I think that's what, uh, in some ways, that's one of the takeaways, hopefully, from from the book itself, but I think it's also true of life. I mean, I've gone through phases like a lot of people, like I'm going to read every self-help book out there about whatever, you know, was concerning me. It's like, it didn't really help, you know, because really it's about figuring out what's going on inside of you specifically. 
and, and there's a reason why when I group those things together, I call them sermons, right? Yeah, because yeah. I do look at like self-help as something like a religion now. Yeah. You, you know, like like people do people go to God for answers and people also go to self-help for answers. Yeah. And, and I just yeah. thought it was interesting that these two, you know, this this mother daughter combo went to these two yeah. religions or maybe fell into them or yes. came across them, however you want to word it. Right. For answers. Um, it was just a really cool thing. I know. Like I said, I didn't even think about it. So, so you really picked up on something and I think you're, you're right. Um, I was talking recently to a friend of mine who seems to have found a self-help world. Um, and he's kind of hard to talk to now <laughs> because, you know, it's like, but what are you going to do today? Mm. How are you going to get through your job? How are you going to pay that bill? You know, we, we can inhabit that sort of transcendence, right? But we also need to figure out how we're going to engage with our actual lives. Yeah. And that's what uh, both of those women have to do. As a Pisces, I, I feel attacked <laughs> again. Um, you know, this is, you know, it's... <laughs> It's, yeah, it's, it's an assassination of my character. No, <laughs> I thought that was funny. Oh, was you th I know my whole chart, yeah. so I am definitely not. <laughs> I mean, I every day I'm like, oh, look, uh, Mars is here, so yeah, I'm with you on that. <laughs> so I, I want to talk about uh, marking uh, mm -hmm. now. I mean, I, I mentioned certain marks, but I want to talk about marking now. And, and Angela has this thing about trying to leave her mark on circus. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, and there's obviously another woman leaving marks for her to find. Mm -hmm. We know that Peach wanted to leave something of herself at Pia's house as well. Yeah. And rather than think of this as something completely animalistic and primal, can you speak to those motivations in your characters? Because I wasn't always saved. Um, mm -hmm. And since I've been a member of the historic, legendary, faithful Black Man Association, I had forgotten all the times women tried to leave things with me back in the day. Now, I call That's them interesting. Children. Yeah, I called them soon thereafter so they could come yeah. and pick them up. But take me, uh, Laura, through these motivations uh, coming from uh, the way circus are they coming from the way circus interacts with them, or is this just like a general practice? Yeah. Uh, like, take me through those motivations. So that's really, again, really interesting. Every seriously, I'm going to tell all the other authors I know to talk to you guys because these are really great questions. Um, you're picking up on things, some that are intentional. I'm so glad you're seeing them and some that were not. And it's really cool that they're it's 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 working on that level. <clears throat> I don't necessarily think this is something that like women are always thinking about or necessarily doing. Um, I do think that there is an aspect of it that, like you said, is kind of primal marking mm. your territory. Right. Um, and I think that the male of many species. Right. That they do that. Um and I, so I think it's kind of interesting to play with the idea that, that women, these women are doing the same thing. Um, but I also think, you know, in, in Peach's chapter, you know, she wakes up, she hears a noise, she looks out the door, she's, and, and she sees Circus with Pia, his ex-wife, and recognizes, oh, this is not the situation I thought it was going to be. Um, this is somebody else's house. And then he makes that comment that you were refer referencing early about her body and she leaves, but she leaves her earrings there. And she doesn't say this, the narration does, that she wanted to leave uh, 
leave them there to say that she was here and it mattered. And to me, that was the first part of that journey that she takes in that chapter to retrieve herself, right? Um, I am not just, you know, a body blowing through. I, I am here and I matter. Yeah. And I think that whether it's, you know, leaving a part of yourself, you know, or as I, as you said earlier, marking Circus's body, which, which, which Angela does. And, and, you know, there's more that happens in that chapter, but that's one of the things that she does. It's not only, I think, primal, as you said, and it's not only like trying to have ownership. You know what I mean? I think it's more about, like I said, I am here. And I think that, and this is kind of bigger picture about the book, and I think relationships like this, um, especially for women, because, you know, I know men have similar relationships with women who are giving them the runaround and not, you know, loving them and, and valuing them in the way that they hope they would. But I think one of the things that is, is primary to the pain of this kind of relationship is feeling like you don't see my humanity. You don't, I don't matter to you. And I am, you're not seeing the times, you know, and I'll play my hand. There have been times when I've been involved with, with men like this, including the one that sort of triggered the idea for the book, where I just wanted to say, do you not see that there's a person in front of you? I have a childhood. I have traumas. I have a family. I have a history. I have goals. I have dreams. I have a job. I have all kinds of things mm -hmm. that make up who I am. And you are just reducing me, right, to either a companion when you feel like it, and it could have been anybody else who answered the phone tonight, right? Or a body or whatever else. And I think that the marking, and I like the way that you phrase it, is a way to say, I'm here. Yeah. I am a person and you have to deal with that. Because I don't think that, that Peach is thinking of it this way, but she knows that this is what's gonna happen. One of them is gonna go into that room whether it's Pia or Circus, and find her earrings. And a conversation needs to happen about her and who she is. And that puts her into their space in which Circus at least is trying to remove her because she's not important and saying, no, you need to acknowledge me, you need to see me, you need to deal with me as a person. And that little act of leaving the earrings is a way for her to do that the act of for Angela of saying, you can't just come in here with bite marks or scratch marks <laughs> that tell me you've had sex with somebody else and I'm supposed to just sit here, yeah. you know? Um, and so, yeah, I think that that's where that's coming from. Yeah, and I think if the earrings don't work, you most certainly steal that baby's bike. I mean, I think, <laughs> right. uh, yeah, I think. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, I mean, she needed to get out of there. Yeah, the movie, and that yeah, was, you know, if you're walking, it's not fast enough. <laughs> yeah. yeah. 
Yeah. Uh, and um, I guess from here, you know, we'll uh, we'll get into these these closers. And and the first one is special for you. This is a question that's a result of a little research. So, okay. in a YouTube video that premiered a few months back, right? Um, you know, you you mentioned that Maggie and Coco are probably your favorite characters in uh-huh. Sweet Soft Plenty Rhythm. And I'm wondering, is that still the case, or has someone else? crept into the picture? I would say that they are probably still my favorite characters um, in part because um, Coco, I had a moment where I was, I don't remember which chapter it was, but I had a moment where I was writing a chapter from Coco's perspective and felt like deeply touched and realized, am am I Coco? Like, how is this connected to my relationship with my father or whatever else? Clear. I mean, and of course, I'm I'm in each one of those characters, but Coco, it felt much more connected. And that's probably one of the reasons. Um, and I think Maggie is just kind of a fan favorite. I do find, you know, as I think about it more and more and talk about the book more, um, you know, somebody like, maybe I'm feeling more protective of Pia because people don't like her. Like my mother called me after she read the book. She's like, I don't like Pia, (laughs) you know? So, um, and so I think I feel maybe I don't like her for sure as much as, you know, Coco and, and Maggie, but I feel, you, you know, these are your children when you're a writer and like every parent you, you know, and I know that there's a difference between characters you're creating up and actual human beings, but to use that analogy or metaphor, you love them and you excuse their bad behavior because you love them and you know where it's coming from, especially when you are actually creating them. I know why, just like we were talking about with Circus, I know why Pia is who she is. And, um, and so maybe I don't like her more, but as I have had to answer questions, to justify her behavior and defend her, I've felt more protective. Got it. Got yeah. it. Okay. Mm-hmm. And um, you dedicated Sweet Soft Plenty Rhythm to your mother. Mm-hmm. Um, can you speak about how you ended up uh, deciding to dedicate your novel to your mother? Um, so it sounds like you guys have done some some research. So it, it's probably... Uh, clear to you that this has taken me my whole adult life, um, five books, 25 years. My mother has still has the first books I wrote when I was six. And the number of people, and I'm not saying this with any bitterness, it makes sense. If you've been doing something for 25 years, people stop asking you about it. People stop saying, it's going to happen. Don't give up. They kind of feel bad for you. (laughs) My mother, every every day that I was struggling, keep going. You're good. Do this. This is your dream. It's going to happen. She never gave up on me. Um, And when I was a kid, uh, she was a young mother. Uh, She went through a lot. And her way of mothering me was to figure out who I was like, oh, you write, here's a typewriter. Oh, you want to take pictures? 
I can't really afford it, but here's the camera, right? She was a student, so she could she could get classes at the university in Kent, Kent State. So she uh, put me in a like drawing. So she tried to figure out who I was and then she tried to feed that. And so, you know, everybody kind of, or a lot of people dedicate their work to their mother. So it makes sense on that level, but also um, she has been, there has not been a second where she doubted me or at least didn't express it. And um, she lost her mind when she read that dedication. I was in the bathroom and she's like, Laura, and she pounds the door. And I'm like, this is not really the time for this moment. But uh, she was really touched, but I couldn't have done it without her. I couldn't have kept going without somebody saying, you need to keep going. This is right for you. And she would also say, but also Saturn, when you're 29, you know, so she was using astrology. <laughs> it's going to happen for you because of where Saturn is in your chart. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah. yeah. No, and that and that is a touching story too. Yeah. Um, so I'm I'm glad uh you answered, glad I asked mm -hmm. Paul Shebang. Yeah, thank yeah. Um, favorite thing you researched that you ended up including in Sweet Soft Plenty Rhythm. There was something about um one of the things that I was really excited about from the Nat Hentoff books was um, and I think I'm I hope I'm saying his name right. I think that's it. Um, in fact, no, I don't see the, the cover. Um, all the little details about um, how they like handle the horn or, um, and, I, and I think that there was somebody that either washed their hands before they touched their horn or somebody that did something similar. So mm -hmm. I decided circus doesn't touch his hands unless they're clean. <laughs> Um, and I got that somehow from the book, uh, the book I was reading. And then things, there was something else about, you know, your sound might change. And this was from one of the musicians. Your sound might change if you had a fight with your wife or if somebody mm -hmm. walks across the room or whatever. So yeah. moments like that. Um, and uh, yeah, it was just kind of getting those little tiny, seemingly insignificant moments, you know, yeah. that I could put into the book. And hopefully to a jazz musician, uh, you know, they would recognize and go, that makes sense. But also make that a make him a character that was that was rich. And it also, you know, even if he wasn't a jazz musician, somebody who, who makes sure makes sure his hands are clean before he touches his tools is a specific kind of person. Yeah. And so having those kinds of um, little tidbits. Uh, was really helpful. And it was just fun learning about those musicians, their characters. The book you want Achille and I to read if we have yet to read it. Have you guys read Kashana's book yet? Not yet. Well, I would definitely recommend it. Yeah. But um, it's really interesting to me. I really, you know, I wanted to read it anyway. And then they asked me to, they assigned it to me. And I really felt like this is really, I haven't read this before. And part of it really feels like a shift, you know, in where, where fiction is going and the stories we tell ourselves, um, how we interpret 
the moment that we're living in um, was really interesting to me. Yeah. So, uh, and, and I know she's getting a lot of attention and a lot of acclaim, but uh, I think it's, I think it's, it's worth checking out. And um, I liked it. I would recommend that. I've been recommending it. Yeah. Nice. Okay. I want to try to like sort of pass, you know, get, get younger. It's, it's just so hard. Right. And so when there's a young writer yeah. who's, who's killing it, I want to support that. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And, um, Kelly, it's on you. All right. So who would you like to see as a guest on Books of Pop Culture? But if you are connected with this person, then you must disclose said connection so that we too can be connected as well. Um, let's see. Have you talked to Maurice Ruffin? Yeah. We had him on our Instagram live era yeah, of Books yeah. of Pop okay. Culture. Yeah. Um. So I'm thinking of people that I, I was just at a um, seminar. It's called the Key West Literary Seminar. And uh, he was there and I remembered, it was my first time, I was on a panel with him and it was my first time being in his presence and he's he was great. S.A. Cosby is too. Mm. Have you talked to him? We have not had him on. I would yes. love to have him on. Yeah. So, I mean, he's definitely having a moment right now. Like, I think just today I saw one of his books is being turned into a film. I just saw him last night here in L.A. He was interviewing that this other writer. He's somebody who uh, he's got a lot to say and he's yeah. really interesting. And the way he talks about uh craft the way he talks about books his references are he talks he brings in music he brings in art he you know brings in popular culture and just really creates a really interesting every the panel that i saw him on and last night i just thought he's really good he really says something unique you know i think a lot of writers it's easy to have kind of canned answers um, but he's, uh, he's a really interesting person to listen to and a really nice guy. Um, so, uh, like I said, he might be kind of busy. I mean, Obama chose his book and, and all this kind of stuff, but I, I think you would enjoy talking to him. Tell us what you were able to share about what's next, uh, for you and, uh, the best place for people to go just to follow, you know, all things lore were well. So um, I am working on the next book. Um, it's about, uh, it is another look at love. It's kind of about an affair. Well, it's definitely about an affair. Um, and people are asking me about it. And so far I'm loving it, but there are some challenges. So I don't want to say too much in case it has to change dramatically. Um, but that's what's next. Everybody knows what I'm working on. My agent, Lisa, et cetera. They seem to be excited about it. So um, if I can pull it off, I, I had a moment about a week or two ago where I thought, this is really ambitious. Why am I trying to do this? Why don't I make it easy on myself? But I, I can't. Um, so that's what's, what's next. Um, I've got ideas coming down after that too. I think I want to move away from relationships and, and look at some other themes after that. Um, and then as far as keeping up with me, I am on Instagram um, and Twitter, primarily uh, LK Warrell. Um, that's that's where you can find me. Nice. And I'll be at some events, um, going to the Tucson um, Festival of Books. 
I'm going to be at AWP, although I'm not on any panels. I'll just be hanging out. So I'm free for coffee. Um, yeah, should be yeah. should be a fun year. Nice. Nice. Well, Laura, thank you so much. This thank was you. just like a great time to record this episode. Um, Me truly. too. And I'm serious. I mean, you know, I, I've done a lot of these so far. A lot of writers, you know, we, we do a lot of these. And this was just stimulating and interesting. And you you notice things that I'm so glad somebody noticed. And uh, I really appreciate it. It was fun and uh, engaging. Thank you. Thank you again. Thank you. And, and, you know, listeners, viewers, get your copy of Sweet, Soft, Plenty Rhythm, preferably from bookshop.org slash shop slash books of pop culture. Um, but, you know, nonetheless, just get it. Get your copy, read it and, and have fun with these characters. And have fun in this world. Truly, it, it's it's a great time uh, for Laura Worrell. Worrell. Yes. <laughs> Thank you. Those W's and those R's just beat me up. That's my life. You've been yeah. left-handed. I've been Laura Worrell. In <laughs> in Achilles, Missouri, I'm Reggie Bailey. This has been another edition of Books of Pop Culture, and we'll see y'all next time. Peace. Thank you.